The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker Chapter 9 Read by Wyatt Fairbanks The first thing Kirsty noticed when she came round the corner of Lodovico Street the following day was that the blind had gone from the upper front window. Sheets of newspaper had been taped against the glass in its place. She found herself a vantage point in the shelter of a holly hedge, from which she hoped she could watch the house but remain unseen. Then she settled down for her vigil. It was not quickly rewarded. Two hours and more went by before she saw Julia leave the house, another hour and a quarter before she returned, by which time Kirsty's feet were already numb with cold. Julia had not returned alone. The man she was with was not known to Kirsty, nor indeed did he look to be a likely member of Julia's circle. From a distance, he appeared to be in middle age, stocky, and balding. When he followed Julia into the house, he gave a nervous backward glance, as if fearful for yours. She waited in her hiding place for a further quarter of an hour, not certain of what to do next. Did she linger here until the man emerged and challenge him, or did she go to the house and try to talk her way inside? Neither option was particularly attractive. She decided not to decide. Instead, she would get closer to the house and see what inspiration the moment brought. The answer was very little. As she made her way up the path, her feet itched to turn and carry her away. Indeed, she was within an ace of doing just that when she heard a shout from within. The man's name was Sykes, Stanley Sykes. Nor was that all he'd told Julia on the way back from the bar. She knew his wife's name, Maudie, and occupation, assistant chiropodist. She'd had pictures of the children, Rebecca and Ethan, provided for her to coo over. The man seemed to be defying her to continue the seduction. She merely smiled and told him that he was a lucky man. But once in the house, things had begun to go awry. Halfway up the stairs, friend Sykes had suddenly announced that what they were doing was wrong, that God saw them and knew their hearts and found them wanting. She had done her best to calm him, but he was not to be won back from the Lord. Instead, he lost his temper and flailed out at her. He might have done worse in his righteous wrath, but for the voice that had called him from the landing. He stopped hitting her instantly and became so pale it was as if he believed God himself was doing the calling. Then Frank had appeared at the top of the stairs in all his glory. Sykes had loosed a cry and tried to run, but Julia was quick. She had her hand on him long enough for Frank to descend this few stairs and make a more permanent arrest. She had not realized until she heard the creak and snap of bone as Frank took hold of his prey, just how strong he had become of late. Stronger, surely, than a natural man. At Frank's touch, Sykes had shouted again, and to silence him, Frank wrenched off his jaw. The second shout that Kirsty had heard had ended abruptly, but she read enough panic in the din to have her at the door and on the verge of knocking. Only then did she think better of it. Instead, she slipped down the side of the house, doubting with every step the wisdom of this, but equally certain that a frontal assault would get her nowhere. The gate that offered access to the back garden was lacking a bolt, so she slipped through, her ears alive to every sound, especially that of her own feet. From the house, nothing, not so much as a moan. Leaving the gate open in case she should need a quick retreat, she hurried to the back door. It was unlocked. This time, she let doubt slow her step. Maybe she should go and call Rory, bring him to the house. But by that time, whatever was happening inside would be over, and she knew damn well that unless Julia was caught red-handed, she would slide out from under any accusation. 
No, this was the only way. She stepped inside. The house remained completely quiet. There was not even a footfall to help her locate the actors she'd come to view. She moved to the kitchen door and from there through to the dining room. Her stomach twitched and her throat was suddenly so dry she could barely swallow. From dining room to lounge and thence into the hallway, still nothing, no whisper or sigh. Julia and her companion could only be upstairs, which suggested that perhaps she had been wrong thinking she heard fear in the shouts. Perhaps it was pleasure that she'd heard, an orgasmic whoop instead of the terror she'd taken it for. It was an easy mistake to make. The front door was on her right, mere yards away. She could still slip out and away, the coward in her tempted, and no one be any the wiser. But a fierce curiosity had seized her, a desire to know, to see the mysteries of the house held, and be done with them. As she climbed the stairs, the curiosity mounted to a kind of exhilaration. She reached the top and began to make her way along the landing. The thought occurred now that the birds had flown, that while she had been creeping through from the back of the house, they had left via the front. The first door on the left was the bedroom. If they were mating anywhere, Julia and her paramour, it would certainly be here. But no. The door stood ajar. She peered in. The bedspread was uncreased. Then, a misshapen cry, so near, so loud, that her heart missed its rhythm. She ducked out of the bedroom to see a figure lurch from one of the rooms farther along the landing. It took her a moment to recognize the fretful man who had arrived with Julia, and only then by his clothes. The rest was changed, horribly changed. A wasting disease had seized him in the minutes since she'd seen him on the step, shriveling his flesh on the bone. Seeing Kersey, he threw himself toward her, seeking what fragile protection she could offer. He had got no more than a pace from the door, however, when a form spilled into sight behind him. It too seemed diseased, its body bandaged from head to foot, the binding stained by issues of blood and pus. There was nothing in its speed, however, or the ferocity of its subsequent attack that suggested sickness. Quite the reverse. It reached for the fleeing man and took hold of him by the neck. Kirsty let out a cry as the captor drew its prey back into its embrace. The victim made what little complaint his dislocated face was capable of. Then the antagonist tightened its embrace. The body trembled and twitched, its legs buckled. Blood spurted from eyes and nose and mouth. Spots of it filled the air like hot hair breaking against her brow. The sensation snapped her from her inertia. This was no time to wait and watch. She ran. The monster made no pursuit. She reached the top of the stairs without being overtaken. But as her foot descended, it addressed her. Its voice was familiar. There you are, it said. It spoke with melting tones as if it knew her. She stopped. Kirsty, it said. Wait a while. Her head told her to run. Her gut defied the wisdom, however. It wanted to remember whose voice this was speaking from the bindings. She could still make good her escape, she reasoned. She had an eight-yard start. She looked round at the figure. The body in its arms had curled up fetally, legs against chest. The beast dropped it. You killed him, she said. The thing nodded. It had no apologies to make, apparently, to either victim or witness. We'll mourn him later, 
it told her, and took a step toward her. Where's Julia? Kirsty demanded. Don't you fret, all's well, the voice said. She was so close to remembering who it was. As she puzzled, it took another step, one hand upon the wall, as if its balance was still uncertain. I saw you, it went on, and I think you saw me at the window. Her mystification increased. Had this thing been in the house that long? If so, surely Rory must... And then she knew the voice. Yes, you do remember. I can see you remember. It was Rory's voice, or rather a close approximation of it. More guttural, more self-regarding, but the resemblance was uncanny enough to keep her rooted to the spot while the beast shambled within snatching distance of her. At the last, she recanted her fascination and turned to flee, but the cause was already lost. She heard its step a pace behind her, then felt its fingers at her neck. A cry came to her lips, but it was barely mounted before the thing had its corrugated palm across her face, cancelling both the shout and the breath that it came upon. It plucked her up and took her back the way she'd come. In vain, she struggled against its hold, the small wounds her fingers made upon its body, tearing at the bandages and digging into the rawness beneath. Left it entirely unmoved, it seemed. For a horrid moment, her heels snagged the corpse on the floor. Then, she was being hauled into the room from which the living and the dead had emerged. It smelled of sour milk and fresh meat. When she was flung down, the boards beneath her were wet and warm. Her belly wanted to turn inside out. She didn't fight the instinct, but wretched up all that her stomach held. In the confusion of present discomfort and anticipated terror, she was not certain of what happened next. Did she glimpse somebody else, Julia, on the landing as the door was slammed, or was it Shadow? One way or another, it was too late for appeals. She was alone with the nightmare. Wiping the bile from her mouth, she got to her feet. Daylight pierced the newspaper at the window here and there, dappling the room like sunlight through branches. And through this pastoral, the thing came sniffing her. Come to daddy, it said. In her 26 years, she had never heard an easier invitation to refuse. Don't touch me, she told it. It cocked its head a little, as if charmed by this show of propriety. Then it closed in on her, all puss and laughter, and, God help her, desire. She backed a few desperate inches into the corner until there was nowhere else for her to go. Don't you remember me? it said. She shook her head. Frank, came the reply. This is Brother Frank. She had met Frank only once at Alexandra Road. He'd come visiting one afternoon just before the wedding. More she couldn't recall, except that she'd hated him on sight. Leave me alone, she said as it reached for her. There was a vile finesse in the way his stained fingers touched her breast. Don't, she shrieked, or so help me. What, said Rory's voice, what will you do? Nothing was the answer, of course. She was helpless, as only she had ever been in dreams. Those dreams of pursuit and assault that her psyche had always staged on a ghetto street in some eternal night. Never, not even in her most witless fantasies, had she anticipated that the arena would be a room she had walked past a dozen times, the house where she had been happy, while outside the day went on, as ever, gray on gray. In a futile gesture of disgust, she pushed the investigating hand away. Don't be cruel, 
the thing said, and his fingers found her skin again, as unshuable as October wasps. What's to be frightened of? Outside, she began, thinking of the horror on the landing. A man has to eat, Frank replied. Surely you can forgive me that. Why did she even feel his touch, she wondered. Why didn't her nerves share her disgust and simply die beneath his caress? This isn't happening, she told herself aloud, but the beast only laughed. I used to tell myself that, he said, day in, day out. Just to try and dream the agonies away. But you can't. Take it from me, you can't. They have to be endured. She knew he was telling the truth. The kind of unsavory truth that only monsters were at liberty to tell. He had no need to flatter or cajole. He had no philosophy to debate or sermon to deliver. His awful nakedness was a kind of sophistication. Past the lies of faith and into purer realms. She knew too that she would not endure, that when her pleadings faltered and Frank claimed her for whatever vileness he had in mind, she would lose such a scream that she would shatter. Her very sanity was at stake there. She had no choice but to fight back and quickly. Before Frank had a chance to press his suit any harder, her hands went up to his face, fingers gouging at his eye holes and mouth. The flesh beneath the bandage had the consistency of jelly. It came away in globs, and with it, a wet heat. The beast shouted out, his grip on her relaxing. Seizing the moment, she threw herself out from under him, the momentum carrying her against the wall with enough force to badly wind her. Again, Frank roared. She didn't waste time enjoying his discomfort, but slid along the wall, not trusting her legs sufficiently to move into open territory, toward the door. As she advanced, her feet sent an unlidded jar of preserved ginger rolling across the room, spilling syrup and fruit alike. Frank turned toward her, the bandaging about his face hanging in scarlet loops where she'd torn it away. In several places, the bone was exposed. Even now, he ran his hands over the wounds, roars of horror coming as he sought to measure the degree of his maiming. Had she blinded him? She wasn't sure. Even if she had, it was only a matter of time before he located her in the small room. And when he did, his rage would know no bounds. She had to reach the door before he reoriented himself. Faint hope. She hadn't a moment to take a step before he dropped his hands from his face and scanned the room. He saw her, no doubt of that. A beat later, he was bearing down upon her with renewed violence. At her feet lay a litter of domestic items. The heaviest item amongst them was a plain box. She reached down and picked it up. As she stood upright, he was upon her. She loosed a cry of defiance and swung the box-bearing fist at his head. It connected heavily. Bone splintered. The beast tottered backwards, and she launched herself towards the door. But before she reached it, the shadow swamped her once more, and she was flung backward across the room. It came in a raging pursuit. This time, he had no intention beyond the murderous. His lashes were intended to kill. That they did not was testament less to her speed than to the imprecision of his fury. Nevertheless, one out of every three blows caught her. Gashes opened in her face and upper chest. It was all she could do to prevent herself from fainting. As she sank beneath his assault, again she remembered the weapon she'd found. The box was still in her hand. She raised it to deliver another blow, but as Frank's eyes came to rest on the box, his assault abruptly ceased. There was a panting respite in which Kirsty had a chance to wonder if death might not be easier than further flight. Then, Frank raised his arm toward her, unfurled his fist, and said, 
Give it to me. He wanted his keepsake, it seemed, but she had no intention of relinquishing her only weapon. No, she said. He made the demand a second time, and there was a distinct anxiety in his tone. It seemed that the box was too precious for him to risk taking it by force. One last time, he said to her, and then I'll kill you. Give me the box. She weighed the chances. What had she left to lose? Say please, she said. He regarded her quizzically, a soft growl in his throat. Then, polite as a calculating child, he said, Please. The word was her cue. She threw the box at the window with all the strength her trembling arm possessed. It sailed past Frank's head, shattering the glass, and disappeared from sight. No, he shrieked, and was at the window in a heartbeat. No, no, no! She raced to the door, her legs threatening to fail her with every step. Then she was out onto the landing. The stairs almost defeated her, but she clung to the banister like a geriatric and made it to the hallway without falling. Above, there was further din. He was calling after her again, but this time she would not be caught. She fled along the hallway to the front door and flung it open. The day had brightened since she'd first entered the house, a defiant burst of sunlight before evening fell. Squinting against the glare, she started down the pathway. There was glass underfoot, amongst the shards, her weapon. She picked it up, a souvenir of her defiance, and ran. As she reached the street proper, words began to come. A hopeless babble, fragments of things seen and felt. But Lodovico Street was deserted, so she began to run, and kept running, until she had put a good distance between her and the bandaged beast. Eventually, Wandering on some street she didn't recognize, somebody asked her if she needed help. A little kindness defeated her, for the effort of making some coherent reply to the inquiry was too much, and her exhausted mind lost its hold on the light. <laughs>